And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Well, as you know, the last couple of times we have been up through the uh, dark ages. And um, in your Bible on church history, we know in the book of Revelation, that would be the Thyatira church period that starts about 500 and runs up to 1,000. And then the Sardis church period, which starts about 1,000 and runs up to about 1,500. And we've covered the dark ages from a, you know, a pretty, uh, uh, pretty good standpoint as far as what it is, uh, what it's really all about. We looked at the Crusades, and we know that basically the, one of the things you want to remember is that the uh, dark ages is nothing more than uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, putting out the light of God's Word all through Europe. And of course, the result of that is the fact that the world is thrown into darkness. Uh, we talked about the, like I said, the Crusades. We now understand that that was basically a ploy for the devil to try to get the Holy Land uh, through the Roman Catholic Church. Rome wanted that. And we looked at all the different Crusades, the battles that were fought and why, and all the things that went along with that. And um, that makes up a very important part of history that helps you understand even the way things are today. And uh, we're going to, today, uh, tonight, we're going we're gonna to look at... Uh, we're going to start going, we're going to hold up here and we're going to go back and we're going to put all together all the Bible-believing groups for you. And then we're going to run into the uh, uh, corruption that was taking place in the Roman Catholic Church, which is going to kind of set us up for the next section, which is going to be the uh, Reformation period. And you're going to see now from this point on, church history, uh, we've come through it pretty quickly, uh, quicker than most things, but you're going to see it from this point on that it's going to... Uh, uh, it's going to bog down because there's so much stuff we've got to look at. And uh, let's begin reading in uh, Revelation chapter 3 here about the Sardis church period, and that's what we're going to come up to tonight. It says, Under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things say is he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, uh, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works before uh, perfect before God. Remember therefore how that thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and, shall, uh, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, there's a couple of things you want to see here. Um, and you're going to go back in chapter 2 here and look at, uh, in the Thyatira period, it says in verse 28, that I will give him the morning star. Now we know that we know that doctrinally that'll be Christ, and that'll be couch, um, uh, the stay star, uh, Malachi chapter four verse two, son of righteousness arising with healing in his wing. We know that doctrinally, but all this has a, an inspirational application to it also. And uh, so what you have here, and we're going to see, t we're going to find out who what this morning star is here as we come down through here. Then I want you to notice that it says in three one, and under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, 
I know thy works, that thou hast the name, that thou livest and art dead. And uh, we've got a situation here where we've got some people who have a name for God and are alive, and then some that are dead, and that dead and trespasses of sin. Notice verse 4, and this is what we're going to focus on tonight in the first part of our time here. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Obviously, uh, we're going to talk about these people in Sardis, period, 15, uh, 1,000 to 1,500, that, um, that have not defiled their garments. In other words, they haven't got connected with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, notice the reference to the judgment seat of Christ, and they shall walk with me in white. That will be the white robes or the white righteousness of the saints. We talked about Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. Um, you find it all through here. And uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a part, point that you really want to uh, focus on uh, as we come down through here. Now, um, one of the things that you're going to find out about God and the Word of God, and this is something that you'll always want to remember, that I don't care. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna come down here and we're gonna we're gonna look at this time period. It probably is the darkest time period in history as far as the Bible and God is concerned. But um, God always has His witness in every dark place, and that's something that you just got to understand. Um, though not given a place in history, and we're gonna talk about this and explain it in detail tonight, um, or even church history. Uh, these groups and individuals that we're going to talk about tonight um, uh, right up to the Reformation. And we're going to start all the way back from early 100 A.D. and then come all the way up through the Reformation. I'm going to show you every Bible-believing group, and I'm going to show you an interesting thing that takes place with all of these groups as we come through it. And we're going to come right up to the Reformation, about 1500, and uh, these will be the men and the women who were the light shining in the darkness. These group of people, um, when they come out of the early part of uh, church history, that'll be about 100 up to about 300 A.D., uh, when the world was still a Greek-speaking world, they used the Greek Bible out of Antioch. When the world changed and went to Latin, then the Bible was translated from Antioch into what is known as the Old Latin. And... Um, it's called the Old Latin Receptus. The Receptus, the word Receptus means received. And then a little later on, or around the same time, it was translated into the Old Syriac. And the Old Latin and the Old Syriac, you want to remember now, the Old Latin Bibles and the Old Syriac Bibles are what bring us up through Europe in the Dark Ages. These are, they didn't have complete Bibles like you and I have. But the New Testament was translated uh, by 400 into many different languages. But in Europe, and where all these Bible-believing groups are at, they only had their Bible in, in a couple of different forms. And one would have been the Old Latin, and the other one would have been the Old Syriac. And both of those are out of Antioch, Antioch of Syria. So it's called Syriac, Syriac. And... Uh, these are the Bibles. These groups uh, are very active during the Dark Ages, uh, and they, uh, they're greatly overshadowed by the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church. But the thing that you always want to remember, God has always, uh, always had 
uh, his true line of people, no matter how dark it may be. And the parallel to that is where we're at today. You've heard me say many times that we are in a we are in another dark ages today. It's a different kind of dark ages, but it's just as dark. Back in the real dark ages, up between uh, 500 and 1500, you were persecuted for your faith, and uh, it only made Christianity stronger as they try to take the Bible away. In the dark ages that we're in, it's much worse because they actually have taken the Bible from us, and nobody cares about it. And so it's a, it's a worse scenario uh, today than it was then. But we find ourselves in the same position. And just like then, today, God always has his faithful few. God's, always faith, God's faithful few have always been in the minority. And that's a principle taught all the way through the Bible. And you'll find that, uh, you know, when the whole world, probably about four, five, six billion people in Noah's time, God had eight people. Uh, when Gideon went out to fight the Midianites, he only took 300 people. Uh, it, it, God's minority will, God's faithful few will always be in the minority. Now, these groups vary in, in the sort of things they, they believe uh, because of the scarcity of the Bibles and their lack of knowledge and the lack of being able to get Bibles because the Roman Catholic Church is, has made it, by the time we're into the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church has made it a capital offense, punishable by death, to have the, any Bible uh, that's out of Antioch. Uh, but they all have one thing in common. They all see the Roman Catholic Church for what she really is. And they reject her and take the Bible, uh, even if they don't have it in its entirety as the final authority, they know that they have it. I might add that probably there was a much more love for the Word of God back then than there is today. Uh, simply because when you have the Bible, you have, can take it for granted. But when you don't have the Bible or you had it and you lose it, then it's another thing. And you'll find that most things in life probably, and this is a true statement, probably most things in life we don't see the value of them until we do lose them. Uh, and that's true of churches, that's true of preachers, that's true of just about everything. Um, these groups are, are branded as heretical sects and, uh, or her, her, groups of heretics and by the great writers of church history. And they're lied about uh, just like they are today. The writers of church history <clears throat> take the pro-Catholic uh, position by majoring on a, a doctrinal issue that they may have had. Uh, and they'll, they'll exploit that, turn it around, make it something that it isn't. And, and then they build a damage report on that basis. But all of these people take the position that, uh, that when they write that Rome is never wrong. And you're going to find that, just like in the case of one of the great saints that we talked about already, uh, Patricius, who we know him as St. Pat, uh, and we have a day, St. Patrick's Day, we know that he's touted today as a Roman Catholic. And he's made a saint, but he was made a saint some four or five hundred years after his death. And, uh, you know, St. Patrick was no more Roman Catholic than I am. And he was a Bible-believing all the, all the way down who never touched anything out of Rome and preached salvation by the blood of Christ. But this is what historians do. One of the things that you're going to learn by the time we get done with church history is the fact that, that Rome controls everything, all down through history, even today. When you see and understand how that... Uh, in Daniel's image, one of the incredible things that I discovered years ago when I was laying Daniel out is how that that image, uh, it moves right into the legs of Rome to the feet of Rome. There's no break. 
Now, what you have down through history is an unbroken line of the Roman Catholic Church being in power. That's why in Revelation it's called Babylon Mystery Religion. What is the mystery? The mystery is how in the world did Rome stay in power all the way through the New Testament when Rome as a nation was defeated and Rome as a nation lost her power and lost her world. How in the world did Rome stay in power all through that point in time? And, of course, the answer to that is through the Roman Catholic Church. So you're going to find that Rome basically has and is today and uh, all down through history has, uh, since the Dark Ages started anyhow, has basically run the world. She's running the world today. And those people don't know it. They don't understand it. They don't know what's going on because they don't understand history. And I tell you, I tell you a truth when I tell you that the Roman Catholic Church is as alive and well today and everything that's going on on this planet as she was in 1500, even more so. She has had almost two, almost 2,000 years to refine her work. And uh, she's active in everything that's going on in this world. All the other stuff that you see that people worry about, back in the 60s it was the communists, back in the, uh, you know, then it was, uh, it was the Russians, and then it was, uh, you know, then it was something else and everything, and everybody wants to blame everything else, somebody, the Jewish banker running the world system. All that stuff is smokescreen to hide the one that you ought to really watch for, and that's the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the first guy that we're going to talk about here is going to take us back all the way around 135 to 160. And this goes back real early. And we've talked about uh, some of these groups in, in brief, but we never really looked at them. And uh, the first guy we're going to look at is a man by the name of Montanus. And uh, Montanus is a pastor. And he lives about 135 to 160. And, of course, uh, the people that followed him were called Montetists. One of the things that you're going to find out about this that's going to even be true today is that the opposition, the people who hate Bible believers, will always call the people after the man they follow. And you're going to find that all down through history. And it's alive today. People who read Ruckman, they're called Ruckmanites. And uh, you hear the concept about Darby and Darbyites. And uh, Darby being a, a British a Bible teacher back around the turn of the century. And you're going to find that that's what the enemy always does. They'll always link the people uh, by the name of the man that they follow. So when Montana shows up and he has a problem with some things, and he breaks with the norm of, of where Christianity is going, and he leads his people out, they're called monetists. And this man began his ministry by, uh, uh, by preaching and, and basically chewing out Christians for accepting the Gnostic ideas. And we talked about what a Gnostic was. And um, people at this particular point in time are falling for all of the things that are floating around out there. And, but God has his men, and Montanus, and Mont, uh, Montanus is one of them. And he preaches about following human leadership instead of the Holy Spirit of God. That would be a preaching against education and philosophy of the Gnostics uh, rather than the Holy Spirit. He preaches the church was becoming uh, lax in its Christian discipline, and it was. Now, this guy is pronounced a heretic on the following grounds. They say that Montana suggested that he was the Holy Spirit uh, promised by Christ. And you got to understand, you're going to read things like this in these books on church history. 
Now, this is where, once you understand how this thing works, you see the value of, of, of even how it works today. Uh, you're going to find that Philip Schaff, you're going to find that Newell, you're going to find that just about anybody uh, who writes about church history is going to write in the negative aspect, and they're going to say something like this. And they say that Montanus was a heretic because he suggested that he was the Holy Spirit promised by Christ. The first thing you look at when you see something like that is who who said that about him? And of course, the answer is going to be the Roman Catholic Church. Well, whoop de doo What do you expect them to say? The very people he was preaching to uh, who were in apostasy, the higher Gnostics and the learned men, uh, they didn't like what he was saying. Let me give you an example of how it worked because it, 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 it's happened in my own life over the years and it'll happen in yours if you stay around long and get involved. But you'll know, you'll hear it sooner or later that when you start to preach to people about things in their life that's not right, or you start to deal with people that are that are not right with God when they don't want to get when they don't want to get right with God, what is the first thing they accuse you of? Being the Holy Spirit. They'll say something like, Who do you think you are uh, to tell me that I'm wrong? Do you think you're the Holy Spirit? See how it comes? And, of course, Montana is preaching to the people who don't want anything to do with the truth. He's preaching to the Gnostic crowd. He's preaching to the philosophers. He's preaching to the people who are beginning to, who have lost their first love, the book of Ephesians, and they're moving into this thing that's going to form in time and become the Roman Catholic Church. So when I read about Montanus uh, being accused of being, uh, claiming to be the Holy Spirit of God in people's lives, well, I could write my own name in that. I've probably been accused of that a hundred times in the last 35 years of my life. That's exactly what happens when you preach the truth to people who don't want to hear the truth. Then he said that he said that they said he said that he preached that Jesus was coming soon to set up his millennial reign. Now, you can see how this guy is going to kind of be a, a square peg in a round hole right from the beginning. I mean, he's talking about the premillennial return of Christ, and he's preaching to a bunch of higher-educated guys who have taken a post- or amillennial approach by 200 A.D. who don't believe he's coming back. So Montanus is at odds with everybody on the way it's going. He's one of these little guys that just stay faithful to the Word of God no matter how much pressure gets put on him, and I'm sure he had a lot of pressure put on him. This guy is preaching, the, this guy is preaching Bible heresy, they say. And yet, when you come down and you find out who writes the official history on Montanus, and so everybody you're going to read is going to save themselves a lot of time. They're going to get the official historical record on Montanus. And who wrote that? Well, good old Eusebius wrote that. Remember old Eusebius called the father of church history? who was the bootlicker of Constantine that was in such a hurry to run down to Alexandria to get the 50 copies of the New Testament that were corrupt? He wrote the official uh, stand on all of these Bible-believing people up to his time. And he lives to about 400, 450 A.D. someplace in there. And old Eusebius is called the father of church history. And he's the father of church history from the Roman Catholic standpoint. So when he writes about these early men who are standing true, he paints them as heretics, because of the fact that anybody who takes a stand against the Roman Catholic Church is going to wind up being a heretic. Now, this is very important when you study church history. 
it's very important that you get a good, solid foundation about who's who in church history before you try to jump into it yourself. Because if you just go out there and buy a book on church history, you're going you're gonna to find some of the stupidest stuff, and 99.9% of it is dead wrong when it comes to the Bible. That's why I tell you all the time that you have to, you have, to have a good foundation in the Bible. That's why the book of Acts uh, is such an incredible book to detail out where we're going in church history because it actually shows you how this thing is going and where it's moving and, um, and, and who to watch and who not to watch. So I don't have to know. Uh, once I know the book of Acts and I see all the road signs in Acts that show me uh, the bad guys and I know that the real good guys come out of Antioch, when I find in history a guy like Montanus, I don't have to read one thing about him. I know where he's from, I know what he believes, and I know what he was against. That's good enough to me to tell me he's on the right side. But if you didn't have your foundation in the book of Acts, you'd never know that. You'd never know that. Then around 200 A.D., we have a guy by the name of Novatia. And... Uh, he withdraws from the fellowship with the other churches because of the bad doctrine of the Gnostics. Again, the account uh, says that he was elected by bishops by his people. Now that's a and you're gonna. And it's interesting that the way that they do that. When Philip Schaff writes about him, Philip Schaff just throws in there that the account says that he was elected as bishops by as a bishop by his people. Now you know what he's saying. He's saying that he wasn't a real bishop because real bishops were put in place by the hierarchy of the church, you see. And here again, this is called, the, if you remember, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. They're setting up the priest class over the lay class. And so, therefore, uh, if you were just uh, called to pastor by people instead of the hierarchy, then you're not really a pastor. Kind of like today. If you've never been to Bible college, you're, you're not a real pastor. And, um, and that's just, you know, that's just the way it works. You learn those things as you come down through in history and see it. Uh, you're going to find that his preaching produces men and women, followers that spring up in North Africa, Asia Minor, uh, and the movement be can, tr- can be traced all the way up into the 5th century. Many of these beginning guys, as they begin, uh, and their work and their people develop, uh, they go on for several centuries, and then they take on different names as they get bigger. And we'll see that as we come through here. But we're going to give you a complete uh, list of the main ones, uh, or just about all of them, that, so you know who they are when you run into them, either reading or, or anybody talking about them. Uh, but here again... Uh, but its roots are found in all, uh, as all the evangelism groups... Uh, for the next 1,500 years. In other words, these guys were the baseline who produced all of the Bible-believing groups for the next 1,500 years. You're going to see how that works here in a little bit. He believed that there was no salvation in the church. He believed in a pure church, a living holy, and, of course, he rejected baptism, regeneration, and infant baptism. And, of course, he again, he was a heretic by the standards of Eusebius, who was the writer of church history. He also writes his account. Then we have a name, around 300 A.D., we have a guy by the name of Dante. And his group are called Donatists.
And he believed that uh, uh, a priest should be saved and live a holy life. He believed in the separation of church and state. He never believed in baptism regeneration, and he rejected infant baptism. And he again, as the other two men, he was against the the uh, the teachings of uh, of the Gnostics and the philosophical stuff that was coming in. His roots is out of Antioch with his old Receptus, the Latin and the Syriac, and uh, had nothing to do with the uh, text that was uh, that was going to be formulated, that was being corrupted, that was later going to become the Roman Catholic Church. Again, uh, Eusebius down the line writes his historical perspective of him. Then we have a man by the name of Mana, Mane, M-A-N-I. And uh, his group that follows him are called Manichians. And this will be around 200 to 300 A.D. And he's labeled as a man uh, when you start to read uh, the accounts of him. And I'll show you how this works. He's labeled as a man who took the old religion of Persia and mixed it with the teaching of the Gnostics and therefore is labeled as a heretic by the church historian Eusebius uh, when he was not. He's accused of teaching what they called back then, or we call it even today, dualism. And dualism is a comparison of a like teaching. It was big with the Gnostics. The Gnostics taught a dualism between the evil of matter and the good of spirituality. And they set up a dual system of teaching on the subject that was totally false. In other words, they took the idea that all matter is evil. And uh, basically, they take the same position that the charismatic takes today, that if it's something good in your life, it's of God, and if it's something bad in your life, it's the devil. That's a dualism, see? A comparison of two teachings. That isn't true. And the Gnostics were teaching a comparison of the teachings between the evil of matter, all matter was evil, and the good of spirituality. And so they, they try to nail uh, Mane with the same kind of deal because of what he teaches. But that was not Mane's system. Mane's system was a Bible system. He taught dualism, and a dualism, not all dualism is bad, but it's got to be based on the Bible. He taught the dualism of Satan and God both being gods, exactly like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says they are. But this is typical of the slander from the anti-biblical writers of church history who think that when it comes to the history of the church, uh, you know that God died. You're going to find it with the Menichians. One of the big issues, uh, one of the big issues that they had problems with with them was that the Manichians taught that there was a gap between Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis chapter 1-2. Exactly like we teach it here. Now that's important because you're going to hear some people when you start to talk about things like that, you're going to, you're going to find people that tell you, well, nobody in the Bible ever really believed that. That just started here uh, with so-and-so back around 1900 or 18-whatever. And of course, that's not true. A man who speaks like that is a man who doesn't understand history. He's ignorant of it. Or just stupid. I don't know which. You're going to find the doctrine of the gap all the way back to these early Bible-believing groups. They knew what had happened. They knew what had happened. Why you're going to find that some of these things are even found in the Roman Catholic Church that the element of truth was there. I have people 
all the time. We had a guy that came to the church a while back that, and I don't, it come up on a Thursday night someplace, I don't know, or maybe some of you said it, or I don't know what happened, but he got wind of the fact that, that, uh, that the devil and Eve had sex together back there in Genesis, you know, and he come over one night and sat down and he wanted to, he just couldn't believe that, you know, and all these things and all that stuff. And, you know, and I just, you know, situation like that, you just try to help the guy as best you can. He was a nice guy. He was a young baby Christian. It probably wasn't going to go anywhere in life. Uh, but he just, you know, he just had a hard time with that. And I, I look at things like that, and I think to myself, man, where you been? I mean, my goodness. Bottom line is this. Don't you know back in the, don't you back in this 800, 800 600, 700, 800, 1200, 1100, don't you know that every statue over in Europe in the Roman Catholic Church and almost every painting they had showed the devil and demons coming down with sex with human beings? Did you miss that someplace? I mean, did they just get that off the movie trailers back then and just kind of paint it? You know, that doctrine was flying around even all through there, and the idea of that goes back for for centuries. But when you don't understand Bible history, you don't understand where these things come from, um, you have a problem. And uh, we had a guy that visited our church a couple months well, it been about six, seven months ago, I guess, and I came three or four times, and he's a nice guy, but he doesn't believe in the rapture. And, uh, you know, his big stick is where you can't find it in the Bible, the word rapture in the Bible. So, okay, you can't find the word rapture in the Bible, so that means there's no rapture? And he come over one night, and he said, uh, you know, my problem is I don't believe there's a rapture. He says, uh, and I said, why is that? And he said, you don't find it in the Bible. And I said, oh, I said, well, that's pretty deep. I said, that's good. I said, you, have, you believe the Bible is the word of God? Absolutely. I said, show me the word Bible in the Bible. Not in there either. See, he's willing to accept the Bible is the Bible without the word Bible being in the Bible. Now, don't count the front page. <laughs> but he wasn't willing to accept the rapture. You know why? Because he didn't want to. The thing you're going to find out about people who don't, want to believe the Bible is the fact that there's not consistent in what they believe. And um, that's just what you have. So when you get into these situations like this, this stuff goes back a long way. I asked him where the word rapture came from. I said, it's not in the Bible, but it obviously came from somewhere. I said, where did it come from? He didn't even know. He didn't have a clue where it started and where it came from. So you know, it's one of those things where that, that's what you've got to deal with when you get into these things. And the Manichians taught the gap all the way back in about uh, 200 to 300 A.D. And that was one of the things that they got clobbered for. And yet you find the essence of that concept of teaching with all that spooky stuff that's going on back there in Genesis chapter 3 and all that stuff that's going on in Genesis chapter 1. You find that tracing itself through everything in Europe during these period of time. I mean, it's incredible. Then you have a group called the uh, uh, Monophysites. And it's a group of people who were supposed to not have the right attitude toward the natures of Christ. But, of course, they did. And of the Monophysites, you'll find that there's four basic branches of it. The Syrian branch were called Jacobites. That was not through the Bible, Jacob, but that was their leader's name. They're from Antioch. Uh, the Egyptians, uh, they used the Coptic Bible. That would be the Bible out of Antioch in, in, uh, in, uh, from Egypt. And within that group would be the group which we, you'll read across in history sometimes called the Abyssinians. That's part of that crowd. 
And then you find the uh, kind of a schismatic group called the Armenians. And uh, then you find another group within that section called the Marianites. You don't, you don't read a lot about this group, but uh, you, you need to put it down there just so if you run into any of them, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll know who they are. They all reject the Mass. They all reject infant baptism. Uh, they reject baptism regeneration, the Eucharist. They believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and they're called a cult sect by all church history writers, just like everybody else is that believes the Bible, by the way, just like you are. Then you have a guy by the name of Nestorius. And the people that follow him are called the Nestorians. Nestorius was a leader, and he split with the church over the fact that he didn't like Mary being called the mother of God. And of course, that doctrine was floating around. Nestorius lives again around 300, 400 in there. Nestorius, um, Nestorian, uh, that idea was floating around long before the Roman Catholic Church came up with it. In fact, the name was first applied to Mary, believe it or not, by Origen all the way down in Alexandria, all the way back in about 180 A.D. And uh, the Nestorians, they reject the doctrine of purgatory. They reject the doctrine of transubstantiation. They reject the church councils. They reject the doctrine of the mass. They reject the concept of image worship. They are missionary-minded. The Nestorians got into India and into the Mongols uh, with the gospel 600 years before William Carey ever got there. Now, he doesn't go into 1800 sometime in there. They got into Arabia and into China long before Marco Polo ever showed up winning people to Christ. So you're going to see that there's a lot, these Bible-believing groups, even though they're greatly overshadowed and they're, 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 their history has been rewritten, when you understand the basic fundamentals of church history, how it operates, where it comes from, and what to look for, it, it becomes very obvious who these people are. And there's still a lot of good books. I, I tell you, uh, you know, I wouldn't, you know, if at some point in time, you're going to have to go through Ruckman's two volumes on church history. It's, it's, a, it's not easy reading, and there is a wealth of material. One of the things that I like about it is in the back of each one of his books, he has a, uh, uh, a place where he'll put all the key names. And like if I wanted to look up and find out about the Bogomiles, well, I go in the back of his uh, uh, second edition and come down through the bees, and I'd find a Bogomiles, and it'll have every page listed where anything is said about the Bogomile. It's a great re- reference source just from that point. But it's, it's a hard reading because he takes for granted that you understand some things about church history. And if somebody doesn't know anything about church history and just starts, picks it up, they'll probably put it down in an hour and never pick it up again. Uh, it's it because he takes for granted that you understand some things, and um, they did it's the two of the probably the greatest books that you'll ever get on church history that really uh, lays it out. And he tells you and lays out a lot of the things about these people that you really need to know. And uh, these groups, all these groups, all these groups are the groups that show up before the Council of Nicaea. And their followers carry on and, and they continue to reject the doctrines and the teachings. But these groups define very beginning for us the two lines that we talked about. And those two lines, uh, most of these people fit into the first period of church history, Ephesus. 
and some of them go into Smyrna. But all of these groups begin to define for us the two lines very early back there. And uh, they begin to show that there's a line going to go that's going to run from Antioch, and then there's going to line that's going to run from Alexandria and from Rome. And uh, it's one of those things that you just have to see, and that's why you've got to put it in, in perspective. Uh, these groups define our two lines for us, all of the soul-winning, Bible-believing Christian groups with the missionary programs and the Bible preaching and the Bible teaching. All of these groups, they have their base roots in Antioch, every one of them. And they use the Bible text out of Antioch, every one of them. And if they're not directly connected to Antioch, then they're greatly influenced by the influence of Antioch and their teachings. The other line, as we well know, is out of Alexandria, which uh, represents the dead Orthodox, uh, Bible-perverting, Bible-denying people who use Christianity as a cover-up to try to control the world. And, um, and by now, in our church history, you ought to have that line very clear in your mind. That line is something that you always want to be able to call upon in your eye and your mind to keep church history in its right perspective. So that brings us up to the groups up to about 500 A.D. And now we're going to look at the groups that take us into the Dark Ages. And uh, we'll see how this thing goes. Now going into the Dark Ages, we have some other evangelistic groups popping up. And again, they will be maligned and lied about by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, many times they are hard to trace. Only glimpses of them may uh, be seen during the great night time. But they all fall into the right line, and by the Bible uh, they die for, and their hatred uh, by uh, their enemies, uh, Roman Catholic Church, and of course the Gnostics and all the people that go associated with it. Now, the first group we're going to find uh, during this period of time are going to be the, a group called the Polyseans. And uh, the name itself is very interesting. How do you think they got along in a Christian world who thought Peter was the key and the head of the church? And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, when it gets developed, and it already had been started but long before the church got there, but the Roman Catholic Church grabs on the idea that uh, Peter is the first uh, head of the church. That's why they claimed him to be the first pope. Going back to a conversation they had with the Lord, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, because the Catholics can't read English. They think that he's talking about Peter being the rock when he's not. But how do you think they got along in a Christian world that was developing the idea that Peter was the head of the church? And Pot Peter was the key to everything. And now do you know why they're called Polyseans? They're called Polyseans because they put the emphasis on their church doctrine on Paul's writings, not the four Gospels or the book of Acts or Peter's writings. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what we do here. I don't know how many times I've told you that the four Gospels have absolutely nothing to do with you directly. Matthew presents him as the king of the Jews. Mark presents him as a servant. Luke presents him as the son of man. And John presents him as the son of God. The book of Acts is to Israel up to chapter 8, and then you're in a transitional period that shows you how the thing goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the Jew to the Gentile. We know that First and Second Peter is to the nation of Israel. They're not even in Paul's epistles. They're in what's called the general epistles. And you've got to be careful with the general epistles. 
The body of Christ's doctrine is in the, in the Paul, books that Paul writes to the churches. Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, all of those books. That's where the doctrine to the church is. And you've got to really be careful going into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Hebrews, James, and all of those general epistles trying to apply something directly to you. Got to really be careful because they weren't written to you. If you just had the common sense of a sixth grader, you'd figure out that the books that are written to you would be the ones that start out to the churches. Since we're in the church age, that's Paul's writings. The body of Christ's doctrine is in what Paul writes. And I've, you're seeing that as how I've laid out the whole New Testament up to this point as we've been into Romans. It even shows you why Romans was so important before you get into the rest of the books. I even showed you how that in all the other books Paul writes, uh, he writes to the churches in, in whatever particular city. But when he writes Romans, he doesn't say to the church at Rome. He's writing to Christians in a general sense, getting you ready to understand what's going to happen in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and right on down the line. That's why. This group's origin is not very clear, but the doctrinal stand they take is. They are Bible believers in every sense of the word. Their roots go back to guess where? Antioch. The Paulinians bitterly opposed the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church of its day, and they teach that they are satanic. With the emphasis on the power of Satan has brought charges of dualism. Remember that? In other words, they all get attacked with the same thing. They're all following a man. They're all a cult. Sound familiar? And that's what they said about Mane. has a pattern to it. This group was rigorously persecuted. They hate the mass, the priesthood, the Eucharist, baptism regeneration, baby sprinkling, and all of the rest. And uh, their emphasis is put very squarely on the teachings of Paul exactly the way it should be. Then we have another group called the Bogomiles. Estimates say that they number somewhere around 2 million. They started Antioch. And they carry on through the Dark Ages. They call the sacraments of the Lord's Supper a worship of devils. They called Mary worship idolatry and called the fathers of the church false prophets. Philip Schaff, the great writer of his church history, who uh, is the textbook for every Bible college on this planet, who wrote seven volumes on church history, uh, calls this group of people a heretical sect. In other words, they're heresies. This group seems to trail itself back through the Paulician, just as uh, all of these groups come into contact with each other and sometime or the other, they're all, they all intermingle someplace down through history, and then they come out at different names, but they all go back to the beginning of Antioch. And uh, their source of their belief and their doctrine is Antioch of Syria. The biggest gripe the Roman Catholic Church had against them was this teaching that what happened between, here it comes, Genesis chapter 1-1 and Genesis chapter 1-2. The Bogomiles. Back four, five, six hundred A.D., believing in a gap. Two point 
two other Bible-believing groups called the Pretributions and the Henricians also come from these groups who are Bible-believing, soul-winning groups and reject the Roman Catholic Church. Then we have another group that come out of Italy. Petributions. P-E-T-R-O-B-R-U-S-I-A-G-U-S. I think. Then we have a group in France and Italy called the Catherii. This soul-winning Bible-believing group were men who were traveling evangelists. Uh, They were missionary-minded. They taught that the Roman church was not the true church. They rejected the teachings of Alexandria and rejected the mass, baby sprinkling, baptism regeneration, um, The estimate of the Catherii in Europe by 1200 A.D., the Crusades, is given as around 4 million by Roman Catholic writers uh, who write during this particular time. The Catherii taught through basic Bible truths from their beginning. One was the Topope was the Antichrist, and the Roman Catholic Church was the whole Revelation chapter 17 and 18. These people back then had a much clearer picture of it than we have. And, of course, they, their, their faith is much stronger than what we have today. And they didn't have churches like we have. Most people think that they all went to church on Sunday. No, they, they didn't have churches. They couldn't congregate like we do. They didn't have the freedom of that. Most of the work goes on in a winning of people to Christ is done on through personal soul winning. When they do get together, they get together in little places where they, uh, they have their meetings, but there's no church buildings. Church buildings don't come in till much later in time as far as the Bible-believing groups. Uh, they, uh, they, they go wherever they can, but the mainstay of their ministry is evangelism, one-on-one, on every street corner. I guarantee you, if you went back in 1200 in some of the places in Europe, you couldn't walk down the street without getting hit and witnessed to about 30 times. They're that powerful and they're that strong. And they're fearless. I mean, absolutely fearless. It's an incredible concept that is lost in our own Christianity today. Is that spelled with C or K? Catheria. Uh, C-A-T-H-A-R-I. Yes, yes, they were, yeah. Now, the Catherii are such a large group, and this is what you begin to see here, that in southern France, these Catherii are called Albigensians, A-L-B-I-G-E-N-S-E-S. So as they move around and or they it goes across the Europe, that you're going to find that some of these groups are called by different names because of the geographical locations. In the Balkans, that'd be around Russia, the Dead Sea, a Dead, I mean the Baltic Sea, uh, the Black Sea. Excuse me. Uh, in the Baltics, they are called Bogomiles. In northern France, they're called Huguenots. But they're all the same group. 
They all believe the same thing. Is that the same Bogomiles, right, that was before the two million strong? It was for who? Is that the same Bogomiles that we talked about before? No, I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I said Bogomiles. I'm sorry. Bulgarians. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bulgarians. Bogomiles are coming. Bulgarians. From Bulgaria, which was the country. These groups are severely persecuted by Rome, uh, starting with Pope Innocent III. Always give me a crack up that all these guys called themselves innocent. What a joke. He preached that the Albigensians were more of a threat than the Turks and the Muslims. And remember now, we talked about last week in the Crusades, when the child crusade flopped and all the little kitties got put into slavery and got butchered and killed, that when all the parents got upset because the youth rally didn't work out very well, uh, the Pope blamed it on the Albigensians. And so then he started a war to persecute and wipe out the Albigensians. I mean, they never miss a trick. And um, he tries to get a crusade going to kill all the Bible believers. And of course, it goes back to what they did. Innocent, a promised eternal life to anyone who killed these heretics for God's glory to save Holy Mother Church. Uh, Louis VII and Raymond VI, both good little Catholics ruled by Rome, raised armies and both killed over a million of them during that time period. In July 1209 A.D., 60,000 men, women, and children uh, of the Catherii uh, were killed by the Catholic army in, uh, in France. Another 22,000 were driven from their homes, and many were killed at Minerva, France, uh, 14,000 killed. And uh, between 1229 and 1234, another 600,000 were killed by uh, kings, all for the glory of God. Two of the greatest preachers during the Dark Ages, hard to find anything on them, but two of the greatest preachers to come out of this group are a man, man called Talcum of Flanders and Henry of Lausanne. Both are street preachers. Uh, both preached against the Roman Catholic Church, against the councils. They both preached no hope in the Pope. They both were against the sacraments of Rome. Both are killed by Rome uh, for their heresy. Then you have other men like uh, Benanoa, um, some of these guys you want to Google maybe and, and, and see what you can find on them. Robert Grobatesco, 1175. Uh, Signy, 1049. Jared of York. Uh, Arnold of Bersesna. Uh, he preached in the street about the sins of Rome, calling the Pope the Antichrist. And of course, Henry of Lausanne and uh, Takam of Flanders. Flanders is in France. Or Belgium, I can't remember which. I think it's France. Fought a big battle there in World War I, Battle of Flanders. I think maybe it was Belgium now, but it was France back then. I think it split, but anyway. Uh, we had Bernard of Thyron, another great preacher. Uh, Robert of uh, 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 Abyssel, I guess it is. A-B-R-I-S-S-E-L. Another man, uh, Vitalis, V-A-I-T-A-L-L-I-E-S. Uh, a Sabage, uh, A-S-B-I-N-G-N-Y. Another great preacher during this time. All these men had no churches to preach in. They were not recognized by the school scholars union. 
uh, nor were they popular with the high churchmen. So their pulpits were the streets and the towns and the empty fields of thousands of nameless little hamlets all through villages all across Europe. All these groups come from the Catherii, one of the strongest groups that you're ever going to find during the Dark Ages. Uh, they split and are called by different names, as we have seen, depending upon what part of Europe that they come into. Now, here comes something that you want to really remember, and this is really important in church history. One of the things you're going to see here, and you want to remember this about these Bible-believing groups, when they start out, we've already seen that they were, when, when things were starting to go south and things were starting to get all messed up, they were men, pastors, who were leading their people out. And we saw that back then that they were leading their people out and the church was calling them heretics and naming them after the man that they followed, Novatius, the Menichians, the Monetists, the Novatians. As time went on, two, three hundred years, and those men and their people began to grow, and they continued to win people to Christ, and it spread like melted butter over popcorn through Europe, all over the place. The Christians got so big, and they were so diverse, and they're from so many different places, that they no longer could call them after the man that they were uh, following. So they had to call them after the geographical location by which they lived. Hence, you have the Catherii, France and Italy, the Huguenots in France, uh, the uh, Bogomiles, uh, Bulgarians in Bulgaria, and they're now called by the area or the geographical location that they're in Europe. As they get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, they, are, they get called not by an individual that they're following, nor even after a geographical location. But all these groups that we're studying right now fall into the category of being called by the doctrine by which they all took the number one stand on, and that was Pedro Anabaptist. Pedro being child, Anna being against. Against baby baptism. And the Anabaptist groups we'll look at here in a little bit. Uh, all the way go up to all the way up almost to the uh, 1700 before they drop the Anna, and then they're called Baptist. But those are things you need to know. The next group is probably one of the most amazing groups that you're ever going to study, and there is a lot of information on this group. And this group is the Waldensians. Supposedly, they're named after a man that they began to follow, Peter Waldo. The Waldensians passed through the 36 official worst persecutions um, that the Roman Catholic Church ever put out. Uh, the worst being the crusade of Simon de Morphat in 1560. They settled in the Piedmont Valley of northern Italy. See, they're all divided up. Northern Italy, central Italy, southern Italy, and they all have different names. The Waldensians land in the Piedmont Valley. And time would not permit us to talk of the work of the Waldensian, but there is some great material out there on it. These men and women carried the gospel everywhere they went, preaching and telling the story of Christ. 
their work with the Bible is so impressive and what they did with the uh, old Waldensian uh, translation that they had that when the King James translators sat down to translate the King James Bible into English in 1604, you'll find that they had uh, four Waldensian Bibles on the table. That's how important they thought their work was in the translation of the Bible. And of course, the translators had access to Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. They had access to Alexandrian manuscripts, and they never used them. And you're going to find that they basically take the, uh, uh, the text out of Antioch. They knew where the Bible believers were. They knew where the true line was. And so they stayed with what they knew was work. So you're going to find, among other things, and we'll talk about all this when we get into that point of it, but um, basically they had four translations of the Waldensian Bible. That would be the Old Latin, the Old Latin and the Old Syriac. These people were severely persecuted wherever they went. And uh, this is a lot of their fate is found in Fox's Book of Martyrs by Forbish over there in the bookstore. But they were, uh, they were roasted alive. They were pulled apart. Mothers put in jails and watched their kids while their kids were thrown to hungry pigs. Moms and dads were roasted slow while they were dying. Nuns would wave bye-bye with their crying children as dying parents. The last thing they saw was their kids being led away to be raised Roman Catholic by some demon-possessed nun and priest. Uh, it, it's incredible what they put up with. They had gunpowder put in their mouth and tied their mouth shut and then blown up. They were put in bags, with heads put in bags with poison snakes, had cloths forced down their throat and then ripped out, fingernails pulled out one at a time. Pregnant women were cut open and their babies pulled out in front of their very eyes, and then soldiers would take their little babies and throw them into the air and catch them up in the spears. Um, some were buried up to their necks and left to starve to death. The Waldensians memorized large portions of the New Testament and the Old Testament in spite of all the persecutions. They carried on the witness of the gospel. Um, by the way, believe it or not, there's still a group alive uh, over in northern Italy still preaching the Word of God. Their old Latin Bible has 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 in it, just like your King James Bible does right there. Because when a translator sat down and Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Jerome's Latin Vulgate left out the greatest verse on the Trinity in the Bible and said it shouldn't be in there, the Waldensians' Bibles had it in. That's why you got it in. And uh, it just goes to show you that they were, uh, they were they, they, your Bible that you have in front of you was bought with a price. And this is why, I, you know, on Sunday, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be such an incredible thing. These are the people we're going to stand up next to. These are the people we're going to have to stand up next to. People like the Lollards in the 1300s. They rise up during Whitcliffe's lifetime. They preach all over Europe during the Dark Ages. Here again, they take a stand against the uh, doctrine and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. They are persecuted heavily for what they believe. And in one case, 400 mothers were smothered with, smothered with their babies in a cave. Thousands are burned alive, branded with red-hot irons. They preached against baptism regeneration and all the other uh, pagan doctrines. 
when John Badley at Lollard was brought before Archbishop Ornell, March the 1st, 1409, Badley said, if every wafer used in the sacraments was truly Christ's literal body, there would be 20,000 gods in England. For this sound piece of theological logic, he was burned at the stake, uh, bound in chains and burned at the stake. All these groups represent the true line in Bible Christianity. They are severely persecuted by Rome. When a heretic was condemned, the church bells would toll and a priest would seize a lighted candle from the altar and cry out, just as this candle is the pride of light, so let him be deprived of his soul in hell. And in the dark ages, the Roman Catholic Church has one job, and that's putting out the light of God's word as fast as they can. All these groups are the forerunners of the Baptists. All these groups, as they develop from the individuals that they follow to the geographical locations uh, that, they, that they live in, they finally get to the point where they're so big and they're everywhere that you can't give them a name on a geographical location or find one man that they're all following. So they get the name that is a great name. That is the name based on the doctrine that they stood against. And that is Anabaptist. In, t- in its entirety, Pedro Anabaptist. And later on, they dropped the Pedro, then they dropped the Anno, and pretty soon they're just called Baptist. And the name we have studied uh, them by as a cult name after they uh, followed the uh, geographical location, I said, and then they come to the point where they're called Anabaptist. And uh, they all hold the Word of God. And they all hate Rome as, as the Word of God does, and they all know exactly what Rome is. And uh, you know what? Let me say this. God has always had his faithful witness. He always will. And right now, we're in the dark ages again. And uh, it's, it's already here. I preached this first time I preached this. My notes here was back in about 1978. And I'll read you my notes down here at the end. It says, and let me say this. God has always had his faithful witness, and he always will. And if the shades of night come in again, and it's on its way, God, no matter how black it gets, if it goes down to 144,000, we'll have that true line of men and women who will stand and preach and die for the word of God for truth. That was written in 1978. And you know what? It's come. Back then it was, and if the shades of night come, and it's on its way. We're in 2010. It's here. It's here. It's here. And God's people need to be the light that shined in the darkness. Now we've looked at the great evangelical groups coming through this time period, 500 to 1500. Now let's look at some of the men who God used to preach the word of God. And uh, we see Again, God using these men. Arnold of Brescia, uh, 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 B-R-E-S-C-I-A, 1110-1155. He came from North Italy. He's a Lombard. A Lombard is another Bible-believing group out of Italy. In the heart of Waldensian territory, he was condemned as a heretic at the Synod of Laterne in 1139 and was expelled from Italy and France. From there, he went to Bohemia and preached there. After a period of, went back to Rome and preached 
and literally started a riot. Pope Adrian IV finally got Frederick I to arrest him and hang him. His body was then burned and his ashes thrown into the Tiberius River. St. Bernard uh, called Arnold's uh, biblical uh, convictions poison. Byronist, a Catholic writer, calls him the father of political heresies. Those two statements were on his doctrinal positions on the baptism of babies for salvation and his position of the separation of church and state. In other words, he was a Baptist in what he believed because that's exactly what I believe. We have Henry of Lausanne. We talked about him. 1090 to 1145. From Henry of Lausanne comes another group in time called the Henrysians. And uh, he is the original pastor of the Henrysians. He's born in Italy at a Waldensian stock. For a time, he was a Benedictine monk, but was later arrested in prison for preaching on the corruption among the Roman Catholic Church. He was later released, and he goes into the hotbed of heresy in southern France and joins the other Bible-believing groups in street preaching and soul winning. The Pope sent an army to southern France and had him arrested, and he was thrown into jail uh, for life, and he died there. Uh, Lethard of uh, Talcum of Flanders. Uh, Lethard and, and two men. Lethard and Talcum of Flanders. 1115 to 1124. I think it's Lethard. L-E-U-T-H-A-R-D. These two men show up preaching all over the streets of Europe. They are the dark horses uh, and the cult leaders, according to Philip Schaff and Newman. They preached against the Mass, the Pope, the church, the sacraments, the corrupt priest, not knowing, uh, uh, not knowing I, as a Baptist, I would preach the same thing 1,500 years later. He holds all those things that the men who believed the Bible were preaching and dying for all over Europe. Uh, they're both killed by Rome. Another great man is a guy by the name of Roger Bacon, 1219 to 1294. He preached that the Roman Catholic Church had corrupted the New Testament text, just like we do. And he emphasized that they had a total disregard for the Bible as the final authority, just like we do. Uh, you won't find much on paper on Robert Roger Bacon. Uh, the scholars don't like his attitude much about the Bible. Then we have John Wycliffe. And if you remember back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 28, God gave the church a promise. He says, I'll give you the morning star. Now, doctrinally, we know that that morning star, as I said earlier, was Christ. But um, from a historical standpoint, that is John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. Now, another side note here that we're going to begin to develop as we come down through this. And from this point on, we get about 10 things rolling here that you've got to try to remember. Is... As Europe was changing and everything was coming about, a lot was taking place around the uh, 1200s, 1300s in Europe, in France, in England, and all of those different places. A language was beginning to emerge, and it was the language of English. I know that we think that English, uh, English was, you know, was spoken even in Jesus' time, but that's not true. English is a makeup of several different languages. And as Europe was changing and the uh, German people uh, were coming over to England and everything was moving around, uh, a language got developed and it was a very infant form. 
And if you've ever seen an original King James Bible, you can hardly read it. All the, all the words with P have the word F, a letter F on them. Uh, all the phonics are different. And what happened is this, that la- any language has to develop itself to the point where it gets to be a workable language. Back in the 1100s and the 1000s and the 900s, uh, there wasn't any music either. Most people think when they hear Brahms or Schubert and all that stuff, they think that that stuff was going on. Music, as we know it, did not start in Europe till around 900, 1,000. And before that, it was just a bunch of bumblebees rumbling around it and being people doing little minstrel things. But, but there was no music till around 1,000, 1,100. And it begins to go through a series of developments there, just like language does. And the English language came from former four or five different languages as the thing in Europe changed. But God knew, God knew that he was going to have English be the last universal language on planet Earth. There are three languages by which God has used as universal languages to give his word to the world. The first one was Hebrew in the Old Testament. So he wrote the Old Testament originally in Hebrew. You have it in English. But he put it in Hebrew, and he preserved it through a group of Jews called the Masoretic Jews. And you have in your King James Bible today an English translation of the Masoretic text in Hebrew, which came from the Masoretic Jews. In the New Testament time, the world was a Greek-speaking world. So when God first put the New Testament into effect, it went into Greek. And that's why all of your New Testament manuscripts that they have today when they talk about manuscript evidence are in Greek. There are not, they're all Greek because Greek was the universal language for the first three or four hundred years as languages began to develop, as Europe began to develop, as things began to change. That doesn't mean that the Bible wasn't translated into other languages. It was, but it was translated from the universal language the New Testament was written in, which was Greek. But as times changed, the world changed. Everything changed. And God knew in his infinite plan that he was going to bring about a worldwide revival and establish a worldwide common language for everybody Uh, for the last 400 years before his return. And that language was English. English is the universal language today. You can hardly go to a country where people do not speak English, other than our own country. (laughs) (laughs) You go to France, most of the high school kids study English in school. I've been in every country almost on this planet. And uh, wherever I go, all of the young people and many of their parents speak English. Uh, I don't care where you go. Why? Because English is a universal language. Every foreign pilot that flies for any airlines, that is a pilot that flies for any other airlines, has to speak English. If he flies transatlantic or transpacific and comes to the United States, he has to speak English. It's required in everything. Because English is the universal language. Well, God knew what he was doing. And uh, when Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation, and he's called that in church history, by the way, he's called that because John Wycliffe 
is the first man who puts out a complete Bible off the right text out of Antioch in English. All the way back in 1200. Well, 1300. 1320 to 1384. He's called the morning star of the Reformation. He's the first light in the darkness that's going to lead to the morning when the Word of God is going to go around the world about ten times and the Roman Catholic Church is going to get her back broke. He's the beginning. Up to this point, there have been no Bibles in English. Up to this point, there have been no translations in English because English was a language that was still developing. If you would look at a copy of Wycliffe's Bible, you wouldn't be able to read it. That's how bad English was not developed yet. It was terrible. It's impossible almost to read. But by the time we get to 1600, English, like all languages, has worked itself now to its most perfect form. And the reason why we talk about, you hear Elizabethan English, terms like that, the reason why Shakespeare is such a classic in, in his writings is because of the English by which that he uh, uses. Because in the 1600, the English language was at the highest form of its purity. And so God started with the morning star, John Wycliffe, who takes the first English translation. And then along the line come four or five more other English translations, all redefining themselves as far as the English language is concerned, not doctrine, and by the time we get to 1600, English is at its purest form, and God then chooses that time to write the Bible by which is going to carry all the world in English for the next 400 years. And that is your King James 1611 authorized version. And we'll get into that in great detail when we get to that point. I'm just kind of showing you where this thing goes, why he's called the morning star of the Reformation. He was born in England of Saxon descent. Saxony is in Germany. This is why you find uh, uh, what these nations coming together in England. We talk about Anglo-Saxon, Anglo, England, England, Anglander, England, Saxony, Saxon, Anglo-Saxon, the mixing of German and the English tribes. Uh, they invade each other, all of the Normans from France, uh, the Saxons from Germany are all coming into England, and uh, out of that whole mess, hosh posh, comes English. And what we call today is Anglo-Saxon. That's a race, by the way. Not like NASCAR, but the other race. He's born in England of Saxon descent. John became chaplain to the king in England in 1366 and was granted a doctorate of theology in 1374. He soon became outspoken in his preaching against the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, England was Catholic at this particular point in time. He was, be, uh, he was, he was, before, uh, he was called before the Bishop of London uh, for a hearing on his teaching. The Pope condemned all of his writings at this time, and with it went the band on the first Bible in the English language. And uh, the church was not happy with his Bible, Putting the Bible in a language that every man could understand was ungodly. 
and to forsake the reading of Jerome's Latin Vulgate, official Roman Catholic Church Bible, for the Latin reading of the Waldensians and the Albigensians, well, that was just too much. John, uh, John enlisted a group of graduates from Oxford to teach the Bible all over England. They became known as another Bible group called the Lollards. And after his death, his books along with his body was burned. And the amazing thing about this guy is he died a natural death. He lived to be about, I think it was 82 or 83. He died a natural death. Rome never killed him. Never killed him. Uh, but, uh, but you know, Rome, they never, they don't get you one way, they'll get you another. 80 years after he was dead and buried, they dug him up and burned him at the stake. That'll show him. After his death, his Bible was worked on by a guy by the name, two guys, by, and this is very important, Nicholas Hertford and John Purvey, who bring it in line with Rome's Gelatin Vulgate because of the tremendous influence John and his Bible had on England and all of Europe. His name was a stench in the nose of Rome till this day, uh, for his life and his English Bible was the dawn of the Reformation that was about to break forth some 200 years later. Now, I actually experienced this one time, believe it or not. I was preaching outside of Gettysburg. I used to have a deal where, and I probably did it at least 300 times. I had a, I had a, I got so good with church history on it that I developed it into about, uh, oh, I don't know, seven lessons, I think it was. But I would go into a church, and I would really, uh, and it was, it was to be a, in a church, had to want church history. I mean, it was a thing where they knew what I was coming for. And I was there from Sunday morning to Wednesday night. And I told everybody that, and the pastor told everybody that this was a something that the whole church needed to come and learn. It was going to be different than everything else that we ever did. That they were, they were committing to come uh, two hours, uh, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night. And, uh, and, I, would, and I had put together... Uh, a, a, an incredible set of uh, lessons on church history that I started on Sunday morning by just wailing a fire out of them about what they should be doing. Then we went to work Sunday night, two hours Sunday night, two hours Monday night, uh, two hours Tuesday night, two hours Wednesday night. And I basically brought them in a preaching form through church history. Obviously couldn't deal with everything, but boy, I hit the high points and I whacked them, boy. I whacked them. And one night, uh, whatever night it was, I forget, uh, I had preached on Wycliffe and, and, uh, and in his Bible. And the next night, a guy brought in a copy of Wycliffe's Bible and showed me that it didn't match up to what I said it did. And I told him at that point that that's because the Roman Catholic Church went back and changed his Bible to bring it in line with Rome. And that's the first time I ever had the actual experience where somebody brought me on the carpet where they didn't do me. And when I laid it out to him, he, he saw it, and uh, he saw what had happened. But that's exactly what those rascals did. We have a guy by the name of John Huss, uh, 1369 to 1415. Huss was born a peasant in Bohemia. Uh, he became a, a lecturer of theology at the University of Prague. In 1398, he became a priest in 1401. He translated the writings of Wycliffe into his own tongue and was properly branded a heretic by the Holy Mother Church. His followers, another group, were called Hussites. 
He's in Czechoslovakia. At one time, the whole nation of Czechoslovakia followed him. You know what? There is no Czechoslovakia today. And what is in its place is now Muslim. It's hard to think back when one whole nation in 1300 followed one man's teachings that probably 90% of the people in that country were born-again Christians. And look where it went. Huss was excommunicated by the Pope, but he continued to preach and write. In 1414, he was summoned before the Council of Constance. He was promised safe conduct to and from the Council by Pope John XIII. As soon as he arrived, he was arrested, thrown in prison, and tried and convicted and burned at the stake. When questioned as to his changing the rules and not playing fair, the Pope said, when dealing with heretics, one is not obligated to keep one's word. And ladies and gentlemen, that kind of philosophy is standard operational procedure for a hellish mother church. It shows up in the teachings and training of what we're going to come down the line, and boy, when we get here, we're going to have some fun with the Jesuits. And that alibi has been used all down through history in the gun counter plot to blow up James I to keep the King James Bible by the Jesuits. The Jesuits in connection with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The Jesuits in, assa- in connection with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand that started World War I. The connection with the Roman Catholic Church uh, in, the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the murder of 19 million Jews, Poles, Russians, Americans, Germans, Czechs, from 1939 to 1945, their involvement in Korea, Vietnam, Central America. It means that any good Catholic can lie under oath and murder somebody in cold blood if the kingdom of God can be advanced politically or religiously. John Huss preached and wrote against the great, greatest enemy of the Christian world. It wasn't communism. It wasn't the Masons. It wasn't the, uh, the, all the other groups, that, the Illuminati. It was simply the Roman Catholic Church. And he paid the price for it. We got a guy by the name of Savonarola, 1452 to 1498. Savonarola was an Italian reformer, born in Italy in 1452. He's a, he's a monk. He enters the Dominican monastery in 1474 where he studies the work of Augustine. He never reaches the place of the other groups for he never leaves the Roman Catholic Church but he's a nasty thorn in the side of Rome. A man used by God as a light in the darkness, he preaches boldly on the sins of Rome and the open ungodliness of the, of the priest until all of Italy was in an uproar. He preached that the Pope Boniface VIII was a wicked man who started his reign like a fox and ended it like a dog. He called the Pope broken tool without God who could do nothing. Pope Alexander VI offered him a red hat that would be a cardinal's hat, cardinal's position, if he just shut up. Savonarola said, I'll take a red hat, all right, but mine will be a red hat of blood. Uh, and he was, and he was uh, very sympathetic for the Bible-believing groups and took a strong stand against Rome. So in 1498, he got his red hat and was tortured alive for two months and then burned at the stake. When Savonarola was tied to the stake, the Pope said, I separate you from the church militant, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, and the church triumphant, to which he replied, you may separate me from the church militant, but not the church triumphant, for that one is not yours. And his last word before dying was crying out the name of Jesus. 
one of the greatest soldiers that you're going to find down through history. These men are just a few of the great men that God used to carry the Word of God and keep the lights dimly on during the dark ages. Yet they bring about through the stand they take and the truth that they preach a moral outcry by the people who they preach to for reform and a corrupt system called the Roman Catholic Church. By 1300 to 1400, most people are sick and tired of the, of the dominancy and the shit-ridden stench of the iron braces of the Roman Catholic Church. And what happens is they began to cry out for reform. You see, God used these men. God used these men and they used these groups because as the Roman Catholic Church got more corrupt, we're going to look at that next time. If the Roman Catholic Church got more corrupt and they got more messed up in everything that they did, the more the preaching of the reformers and the more people got saved, the more pressure was put on them. I mean, they couldn't kill them all. And the devil made a great mistake. He doesn't make many, and he never makes the same one twice. But he made a great mistake here because he thought he could wipe out Christianity with a sword. He thought he could wipe out Christianity with, uh, uh, with an army and torture and fear. And he learned a great lesson. He learned that you don't wipe out Christianity, true Christianity, by persecution. It just makes it stronger. But it's a lesson that he, it's a mistake that he never made twice. So when the second dark ages come in, we find that the devil had learned his lesson. And when our dark ages come in, he knew that the way to make it succeed was no sword, no persecution, but everything that you want. He knew that giving you a grocery store which you could walk in where the food was lined with this, that you didn't have to worry about anything, that you had all the gas, all the cars, all the clothes, that you had everything that you needed. He knew that that is what would put out the lights. He makes a mistake now and then, but he never makes the same one twice. Well, let's hold up there and Next time we'll pick it up and we'll get into the corruption of the popes and we'll look at the thing that led up, some of the things that led up to one of the most exciting times, I think, in the history of the church and that is the Reformation period of time. Yeah.